In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. You don't have to tell everything to everybody, but you better be telling everything to somebody. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we we salute salute you. you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena Podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and I am here with my brother from another mother. Dale Colber. How you doing, my man? I'm doing great, buddy. How you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, it's my son's 21st birthday today. Uh-uh. Yeah, so. My son. You have three of them. So I, this what's must my be youngest son? Baby Colton? Yep. It, oh, yep. my so, goodness. Hey, I'm excited about today and our guest. Uh, this guy was the first guy to ever have me on his podcast Ooh. about five years ago. He currently has a ministry that I think is one of the best systems out there for men, Christian guys who are struggling with compulsive behaviors. They have groups all over the country. I'm really excited to bring him on. But before we do, do you have a man word for me today? I do. And, and I'm looking at his book right now, and if you pick Samson or Pirate, I'm going to kill you. I was, was going to go with Pirate would be wonderful. I'm going to go with Authentic. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure we did authentic. Oh, how about brotherhood? Yeah, brotherhood. is that the word? I did brotherhood. Oh man! You know, I was just sitting here thinking too. You're so like, predictable; it's pathetic. We shut I mean, down honestly. our our groups during the summertime, and I'm like Jones and for some brotherhood. I'm, I think I'm I'm like low on like you know it's kind of like vitamin D for me to be in the brotherhood, yeah, hanging yeah. out with my guys who got my back and just encourage one another. So yeah, I think it's so important. Well, we had brotherhood last week when I killed your computer with my coffee cup. And that we had to was very spend the day at, at the Apple Genius Lab. I'll never forget that day. It was beautiful. Oh yeah, gotta love twelve hundred dollars going away in summer when you're a nonprofit <laughs> organization. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think you could sue Starbucks for that, probably. Oh, and I think I got burned in the process. <laughs> hey, do you have a review for us today? Shout out. Yeah, uh, we got one from Lightning Coburn eighty eight. So, hey man, hit me up. I want to send you some swag. We appreciate that. That's uh, good stuff. And so, yeah, guys, send us, hit us up with your reviews. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. So, and it just helps us out and all that good stuff. Yeah, guys, it really, really does. So, hey, I'm going to bring on our guest, our new friend Nate Larkin. He uh, today he is sixty two years old. Lives in Franklin, Tennessee, and married to his beautiful wife, Allie, of 41 years. 
Nate specializes in helping Christian men find friends, break the bonds of compulsive behavior, and reconnect with God, transform their lives with themselves and others. In 2004, Nate launched the Samson Society out of Franklin, Tennessee, as a place where Christian men can bring their real selves, say the real truth, and walk together in the light. It's grown to more than 400 local groups and dozens of virtual groups that are online. When I went on the website, I saw all of these groups through Zoom and uh, pretty awesome stuff. He's the co-host of Pirate Monk Podcast, Positive Sobriety Podcast, and is a frequent frequent speaker at conferences and retreats. Nate's story is in the book, The uh, Samson and the Pirate Monks, Calling Men to Authentic Brotherhood, which is our topic for today's discussion. So, Nate, it's great to have you on your show, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. It's an honor to be with you, Jim. Man, I'm just, I'm really excited. Hey, can you take a couple minutes? It's in, your book, uh, I really enjoyed your book and the, the story of your life, and you are so authentic. Like, and I've heard this story before on, on your I Am Second video and different things, but man, you just, uh, you just get real, and you get real very, very fast in this book. Will you just take some time before we get you on and throw you in our rapid fire round? Will you just take some time and share your story with our guys? Sure, sure. Um, and it's a and it's a privilege to be able to do it. It's amazing to me that I was so terrified for so long to come out of the shadows mm. and tell my real story. I thought for certain that if people ever found out who I really am and the kind of things I've really done, that I would lose all credibility. I'd lose all friends. I would have no social connection. I would I don't know. I'd be a pariah. <laughs> it's turned out to be just the opposite. Wow. Uh, People did run when they heard my story, but they ran toward me instead of away. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so I grew up in the church. My dad was a a Pentecostal preacher. I'm the oldest of 10 kids. Uh, And grew up in the holiness movement. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, for us, right behavior was absolutely paramount. And uh, and I was... uh, you know, I was always real small for my age, not very athletic, nearsighted, a lot of things I couldn't do, but I could do church. I was really good at church. I had a great uh, memory back then, as I recall, and I could uh, and I could sing, which got me a lot of applause and recognition. And uh, and so it was predicted from the time I was a little guy that I was going to be a preacher just like my dad. That was that was the family destiny. And I, I knew I'm. I was the next Billy Graham. Mm. Uh, and I was a good kid. I went to public school where I was the Christian kid, uh, the kid who started the Bible club, the kid that teachers pointed uh, to as an example to my classmates, which didn't always make me the most popular kid. All, I, I got The, nick, the nickname I, I got was Saint Nate. <laughs> and... Um, and, and I did have friends, and uh, I'm grateful for my school experience. But things got complicated at puberty mm. because uh, I then began to develop some interests and experience some impulses that really didn't sync well with my reputation as St. Nate. And I really felt it was my obligation as a Christian uh, to hide those things, and uh, w- which I did very successfully. Uh, my first exposure to pornography took me completely by surprise. Nobody warned me that porn even existed. Uh, nobody told me that every boy eventually sees porn, that every boy instinctively likes porn because it depicts something we're wired by God to want. Uh, 
Um, I didn't know it was, it was bad, but I didn't know why it was bad. Uh, um, and uh, strangely, today, I actually have to make the case when talking to college kids and high school kids and even some parents that, that porn is destructive. It's terribly destructive, and we could talk about that for hours. But mm-hmm. I think its most pernicious property is that, is that porn offers us an imaginary connection with a virtual person. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, if we accept it, begins at that moment really to impair our ability to form and sustain a real relationship with an actual person. So long-term porn use uh, creates an intimacy disorder. Uh, so we go to porn for this one thing that we desperately need, the thing we're wired for, for intimacy, for connection. That's how God made us. Uh, porn seems safe. There seems to be no risk of rejection, but it leaves us in the end with an impaired ability to connect actually with a, to, with a real person and get that deep need met. It leaves us lonelier. And uh, I was, despite being well-known and fairly popular, uh, having a great reputation as St. Nate, I grew up a pretty lonely kid. I rationalized my porn use during my college years, still hid it because I, after all, I was president of the college camp, a uh, Christian association, a Christian group, but a uh, Christian fellowship. So I couldn't you know, advertise that I was using porn, but I decided that I would stop feeling guilty about it. It was time to join the 20th century. It was time uh, to become comfortable with my sexuality. Uh, I needed sex education and I thought what better place to get it than porn. I, I th- used porn in preparation for marriage, mm. unaware that I was actually poisoning my marriage. I was allowing porn to create expectations for marriage that no woman on the planet would ever be able to fulfill. I banked on this crazy idea that marriage would solve my porn problem and was deeply disappointed mm. to discover that it didn't. Uh, I really didn't know how to connect with my wife. Uh, uh, there's a big difference between having sex and, and lovemaking. Mm-hmm. There, uh, when, when all of my behavior is being driven by lust, lust kills love. And I'm not with a person, I'm with a body. And mm-hmm. I'm not giving, I'm taking. And uh, I married a wonderful, marvelous, and very patient and empathetic woman. And she stayed with me for 41 years. That's crazy. I did go into the ministry. Yeah, I was a church planter, started the church during a period of abstinence when I really thought I had the this porn thing licked. My experience during those years was I could maybe hold off for a few weeks at a time, but eventually whatever ritual I had developed or spiritual discipline I was going to follow that was going to keep me away from porn, it would wear out. And I uh, and I would be back in the soup again. And then it got worse because, uh, I, I, by the way, I had been introduced to hardcore pornography. I started softcore stuff in high school, hardcore pornography in seminary, when the seminary actually sent us on a trip co-sponsored by a group called Women Against Pornography into New York City so that we could see firsthand how women are exploited by the sex business. So that's where I saw my first peep shows. That's where I got my first look at video porn. Of course, it was film porn, actually. It was pre-video days. Um, and unaware at the time how much, more, how, 
how much more powerful those moving images were than any still images I'd seen before. And then uh, a few years into the ministry, on my way to a candlelight service on Christmas Eve, I pulled over to pick up a woman who was walking in the rain, uh, unaware of what she was doing until she was in the car and propositioning me. So that was the first time I ever paid a prostitute, which was just a horrible, just a horrible experience. And the worst thing about it was I knew deep in my heart that I was going to do it again. Mm. So although I made, you know, I resolved not to do it. I prayed. I promised God I wouldn't do it. Uh, eventually I did and, and then couldn't stop. Got into a cycle that just took me out in despair. So I quit the ministry after five years. I woke up on my 30th birthday knowing that uh, I was either going to have to quit the ministry or quit the behavior. And at that point, there was only one I could quit. So I left the ministry at 30, went into business where I had the great misfortune to succeed. Uh, and uh, now I had more money than I'd ever had before with even less accountability. And that, what followed then was a very, very dark dozen years in which, by the way, I never missed church. Wow. I loved oh, man. I loved church. St. Nate could breathe at church. I just couldn't get him to breathe on his own for very long outside the book. Wow. You know, it wasn't until, well, you know, now it's hard to believe. 21 years ago, we made the move from South Florida here to Middle Tennessee. Shortly thereafter, my wife caught me one night uh, downloading porn. And by this point, I mean, we'd been married for 20 years. Porn did not make me a better husband. <laughs> my wife was in for all practical purposes, clinical depression, and nobody knew why. Uh, but uh, yeah, so during those years, uh, you know, I never missed church, begged God for a, a solution that he didn't, uh, he didn't provide. Mm. Yeah, but we moved, I'm sorry, we moved here to Tennessee. My wife caught me, and that's when uh, she sat me down on the edge of our bed and said words I have never forgotten. Uh, she said... I'm done. She said, I still love you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't respect you. And I don't think you can ever change. And those are the words that saved my life. It was in a desperate attempt to save the only real friendship I had uh, that I finally did something I'd never done before. I abandoned my private solution, my private search for a private solution to my private problem and went to get help. I didn't go to the church, by the way. Uh, I didn't trust the church, didn't trust pastors. I'd been a pastor. I'd participated in the discipline and expulsion of other guys mm -hmm. who had been uh, crazy enough to take our rhetoric about grace at face value and confess a sexual sin or had been caught. I wound up going to uh, a 12-step group for sex addicts. So, you know, in the basement of the church in the middle of the week while all the good people were gone, uh, I sat around in a room that I, I had never in my life been in a room that safe. Wow. I'd never heard honesty like that in my life. I'd never felt such empathy in my life, never seen such humility, never felt such kindness. Yeah, there was real grace there and there was hope. Mm. Uh, it was confusing to me because they were talking about a higher power. Yeah. And actually, it turned out for me to be a very good thing, to be deprived for a little while of my well-worn Christian religious vocabulary. Mm. I got to encounter God in a new way. My experience in 12-step recovery and, 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 and really what was transformational was I was invited into friendship where I didn't have to perform. They didn't want to meet St. Nate. 
Hmm. They had no interest in meeting St. Nate. They wanted me. And turns out uh, that's what was missing from my relationship with God all those years. It was never God. It was me. I kept sending St. Nate. So my experience in 12-step recovery opened my heart, opened my life. Uh, I began to experience intimacy, non-sexual intimacy for the first time, which was something, by the way, as I, as I learned to open my heart to another person, something I could bring home. And, uh, you know, the changes that I had worked so hard to try to make on my own, driven by guilt and, and, and shame, uh, actually began to happen as though the power was coming from someplace else. Mm. Didn't happen overnight. This is, after all, is a healing process. And although God can heal instantly and occasionally does, he prefers healing processes like the ones he's designed in our yeah. body. It takes time. So I've been, uh, I, I was just, uh, it, it, you know, it saved my marriage. It saved my life. It opened doors and windows on the gospel I'd never seen before. Uh, and a few years later, we wound up starting a group for Christian guys that was not limited to guys with sex addiction. Yes. And guys who wanted to be able to explicitly connect their Christian faith to recovery experience. Uh, so we started the Samson Society in 2004. So I just, the title of your book cracks me up, Samson and the Pirate Monks. And I, yeah. I, I, I've, I've read, I've read of your ministry. I was on your podcast and I've been waiting to ask this question. And I, now I know the answer, but I know our listeners are wanting to know the yeah. answer to this question. What is up with the name? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me tell you about the pirate monks. That our, our logo is a monk with an eye patch. Yeah, yeah. Which is really for us, it's kind of a symbol, a symbol of the of the integrated Christian life. You know, we're all Christian guys, so we all have this monk part mm -hmm. that loves to do the things that monks love to do. Uh, but all of us also have a pirate part. Yep. And for years, what most of us did was we made the mistake of thinking that the monk is all good and the pirate is all bad. And we tried to kill the pirate and be the monk. Well, the truth is that, you know, the monk's a good guy, but he's got his problem. He tends to, to he tends to isolate. He can get religious and distant and he can start to think that he's better than other people. And the pirate is, uh, I mean, he's a scoundrel, but for one thing, he doesn't pretend to be anything other than a scoundrel. So he's got that going for him. Mm -hmm. He also knows how to be with mates and he loves adventure and he's got courage. So the idea is if we can take the best of both and put them together and be the same guy all the time, mm. now we've got something going. It's interesting. Well, and, you, and then you continued uh, on, I think, page 71, you said, it suddenly occurred to me that my childhood fantasy had come true. I was Samson. Yes, yeah. I was the man on a mission. I was gifted. I was, I had produced a few oppressive accomplishments. From all outward appearances, I had been a competent professional and mature Christian, but inside I had been desperate, a desperate fugitive from reality, bound by blindness and self-destruction. So tell us about that. Yeah, you know, the story of Samson, you know, here he is. He is this... Uh, you know, superhero guy does stuff nobody else has ever done and nobody else will ever, you know, feats of strength and courage and military uh, prowess that nobody else would ever duplicate. Uh, but he was actually, his birth was a messianic thing. It was, a, it was announced by an angel to his mother and father. He was sent to deliver Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, that was his destiny. And although he did outsized things 
Samson never had any friends. There are no, no, no friends. His story occupies four chapters in the Bible, and the only associate of his that's named other than his parents is the woman who betrays <laughs> him, Delilah, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He's not a prayer. He doesn't talk to God. He really doesn't talk to anybody else. He doesn't give the big, long speeches and prayers that we're used to hearing from other major Bible characters. He keeps it all inside. He's very emotionally constipated, right? <laughs> and he is a loner, man. And he spends a lot of time behind any enemy lines. He's almost always alone. And the tragic thing is that, you know, he, he was undone. He had a great fall. He was undone by Delilah and wound up with his eyes gouged out in chains, walking in circles in the dark day after day. Did end his life in spectacular fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, he killed more Philistines in his death than he had killed in his entire life. But, but he died alone and he died a failure. Nothing had changed. The Philistines uh, still dominated Israel when Samson died. Mm-hmm. You contrast that with David, who God sent a little while later. And here's a guy who actually defeated the Philistine. Uh, he was a guy who also had a great fall mm-hmm. uh, regarding women, a, a great collapse. But unlike Samson, uh, David actually recovered. And he recovered because I believe he had learned to do the things that make recovery possible, the things that Samson had never done. He actually had friends. The first one was Jonathan. And then he had the names of his friends go on for pages in the Bible. And David lived out loud. He was connected to his heart, his feelings. He knew what he felt and he poured it out. He was honest and authentic. He showed his weakness as well as his strength. He lived in the present moment. Yeah. And he, and he, and he surrounded himself with family, with friends. He stayed socially connected. And it, were, it, were, it was those connections, really, that made it possible for David to recover. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm Samson. My brothers, you know, were very Samson-esque. Turns out I am a colossal failure as a solo disciple. Uh, and I, I now know it's for the very simple reason that Jesus doesn't have any solo disciples. He, has, he never has had any solo disciples. He first said, follow me to two guys, not just one. Well, on page 73, you, the most powerful statement in your book, in my opinion, for me personally, was yeah. this. You said this, while Jesus does offer us a personal relationship to every one of his disciples, he never promises any one of us a private one. And then you go on to say that he called, when he first said, follow me to two men, he just continued and added 10 more. And so this, I've never thought of it that way before. He, and you know, in John 13, he says, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So walk us through this private versus personal relationship with God. Yeah. See, I, I, I was so bound by shame over my sin, kind of the religious atmosphere that I was raised in. Uh, shame was used as a motivating factor to kind of, of course, it doesn't work. It eventually dawned on me that I would never hate myself or hate my sin enough to stop. That sin is just a, a shame is just an, a, a bottomless downward spiral. What shame does, though, is it sends us into hiding. Shame was, was the first response, Adam and Eve's first response to sin. They hid. When God came, they hid. And by the way, uh, God still came, even though he knew that they had sinned, yep. which is something, by the way, that I, runs counter to theology I was raised in because— yeah. You know, I was taught that, you know, God gave you grace, but when you sinned, you fell out of grace until mm-hmm. you straightened up and came back. Mm-hmm. 
uh, apparently God doesn't subscribe to that theology because he actually showed up knowing full well what they'd done. But okay, so I was too ashamed to tell anybody else what I was doing, too ashamed to come out of the brush, out of the hiding, out of the shadows. And so I tried to find a solution on my own. Yeah, we sang that when I was growing up in church. I come to the garden alone, right? (laughs) And so I really thought that I just needed more private time with God. It's interesting. Toward the end of his ministry, Jesus sat his disciples down. He said, you know, I'm going to be going away pretty soon here, but I'll still be with you under this condition. When two or three are, are gathered in my name, I'll be there. Yep. That's when he shows up. John says, when we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Real fellowship, not this, you know, shoulder punching, towel snapping, artificial brotherhood that we can do. Kind of this locker room thing that isn't real. Mm -hmm. You have real fellowship with one another. And in the process, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's a scary thing to come out of the shadows and let somebody see who I really am. Because I believe, I deeply believe that if you see who I really am, you'll reject me. Yeah, you just quoted uh, 1 John 1, 9. And why is confession so scary for guys? I think that may be the most powerful tool God has given us as men confession, but we shrink back from that. And I don't understand. Can you help us to understand yeah. why well, is it shame that causes it or embarrassment or are those yeah, the yeah, same it's thing? Shame. Yeah, it's, it's, it's shame. I deeply need connection. I'm built for connection. I'm designed for connection. Now the connection that you and I have is very tenuous. It's not very deep, but it's the only one I've got. And I, and I can't risk it and I can't risk. I, and so I'm in this community where I'm performing. I'm, everybody thinks I'm one way, but I'm really another way. But at least they know my name. I have some status. I have some connection. The thought of being ejected from the community or losing your friend, your friendship is so terrifying to me. If I am going to confess, I am going to speak in code. I remember uh, when I thought that uh, accountability was, you know, shame-based accountability was the key to overcoming lust and my porn problem. That was tricky because I couldn't really confess everything I was doing or I'd have been kicked out of the church. I talked in code about the lust of the eyes and, uh, you know, then pretended that my major problems were grouchiness and speeding. (laughs) And then I, I get with some other guys and we promised to meet together weekly and ask each other the tough questions. But by the first meeting, I was always lying. Mm. Um, The whole arrangement, by the way, was built on the insane assumption that I can hold it together on my own for an entire week. And then, of course, I'd feel shame for lying and then the group would, you know, disintegrate. But to be able to show up in a place that where where (laughs) there is enough humility and there is enough confidence in the love of God. When we have forsaken all hope of establishing our own righteousness and accepted a righteousness that's not our own, and it's completely safe for me to come in and talk about my sin in the present tense, because <laughs> my sin is not a threat to my salvation. I spent years begging God for a forgiveness that was already mine because I didn't understand to believe the gospel. Mm-hmm. When I can, when I can talk about my sin in the present tense with another guy, I'm doing two things. First of all, I'm strengthening my connection with God and with Him. I'm also giving Him confidence to come out of the shadow and talk more frankly to me. I've found that in the more I'm willing to confess my own sin, the more magnetic I become. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I become the safest guy 
people know. Yep. And then that means we can have real fellowship and deep connection. And in that connection, Jesus shows up and healing happens. Hey, we're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsors. Come right back. The Men in the Arena is a nonprofit organization with the mission to inspire men towards becoming their best version and changing their world. Every man in the arena matters. Our Men in the Arena closed Facebook forum for men is a great way to dialogue about manhood with men from around the world. There we have lively discussions on every topic of manhood imaginable. Join that group today. Because of the passion to see men get out of the bleachers and into the arena, Jim wants to offer some powerful resources to all men who visit our website at meninthearena.org. Give us your email and we'll send you a free PDF version of the field guide. It's Jim's 365-day bathroom book for men. It's the study of manly words in the Bible, illustrated with great stories. This is also a great resource for all our arena men. We'll also add you to our weekly equipping blast, including Jim's personal blog, prayer requests, and weekly boots on the ground mission. Men, the stakes are high. The pressure is on. Do you hear the roars of those you love and those anonymous voices in the bleachers pleading for you to enter the fight? Because when you get it, everyone wins. Now, back to our episode. So I know that you ultimately found freedom from this. Describe your life at 62 compared to your life at 32. How has your life changed since then? I know you you talked about this on page 95 of your book. You said your life is simpler now, but it's not easier. Can you walk us through that, that difference between 30 years from now? Simpler but not easier? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, um, I have not lost my vulnerability to lust. Mm -hmm. Uh, The brakes are gone. So, uh, you know, it's a great saying. It doesn't matter how far down the road of recovery I go. I'm always the same distance from the ditch. Never heard that before. (laughs) That's really good. Okay. So I need, so, so I have this freedom. It's a wonderful freedom, but it's a fragile freedom. Um, I have, I, so I protect it with boundaries and brothers. Hmm. Uh, I keep it by giving it away. Um, I step into humility and admit my weakness and vulnerability on a, hopefully on a daily basis. Now I have relapsed some over the course of the last 20 years. I relapsed right after finishing the book, mm-hmm. uh, because I looked myself in the mirror and said, Nate Larkin, you're the man who wrote the book. And I got this sense of accomplishment as though I, I got the green jacket and now I'd graduated to some kind of, mm. I, and I could now begin safely to talk about my uh, vulnerability to lust in the past tense as though it's a problem dealt with. I want to tell. And, and I had, by the way, I had isolated as, as the deadline to finish the book approached. I'd just kind of gone into isolation in order to finish it, buried down. I, I hadn't been in contact with my friends. I'd missed a couple of meetings of the Samson Society. Because I was working on the book, other things weren't getting done. So there were some stresses that were building. I was setting myself up for relapse. And sure enough, one day, very shortly after I finished the book, I was just one click, man, and I was face, you know, headfirst back into back into the soup. And and then, of course, when the next Monday came around, that happened on a Friday. When Monday came around and it was time for the Samson meeting and I showed up at the meeting. Then the question was, am I going to tell the truth? Oh, yeah. I'm the, I'm the leader of these guys. I wrote the book. 
That's right. <laughs> and I had a voice telling me, Nate, you owe it to these guys to lie to them. Mm. Uh, you're going to shatter their hope if you talk because you know you've got to be the hero. You've got to be the strong one. And fortunately, there was another voice that I did listen to that night. You know, so when it when it came time to sharing, when we broke into sharing groups, uh, I somehow found the courage to tell the guys. And then, and then what I did when we got back together, I kind of broke protocol in the meeting. We don't do this normally. In fact, we we seldom talk about our failures in the meetings. It's not confession time. Usually, confession is happening between the meetings in the re- in the relationships that guys have. That's really where Samson lives between the meetings. Oh. But that night, <laughs> I said, hey, just so you know, I feel obligated. I want to tell you guys, there were oh, a couple dozen guys there. I said, I did relapse last week. And, and I, I know from experience that I've scratched this thing, and now it's going to itch like crazy. It's much easier to stay sober than to get sober. And these next couple of weeks are going to be more challenging than most. So I would love it if I could make a phone call every hour between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. And I passed around a sheet and asked guys to put in when they could take a call from me. And so I just made a check-in call every hour for the next, from eight to eight for the next couple of weeks. And it turns out that's one of the best gifts I gave the myself and one of the best gifts I gave the group when I didn't climb back up on the pedestal and try to be stronger, better, uh, more healed than I am. I'm grateful today, man. The compulsion is gone. I've got a freedom. Uh, but I'm very aware of the fact that I can give that away. And, and so I need to keep up some really healthy uh, practices and habits in order to stay free. Well, and it's interesting, Nate. You said uh, after you wrote your book, you went in and it was a click. And I, I, I got that word because back in the day, it wasn't a click. It was a page turn. Yeah. So yeah. The, the whole yeah. game, the stakes are, uh, you know, the phone that we carry is a library of pornography. So it's a little bit oh, different man. now than when, you, when you're when you in the in the 80s and 90s, right? This stuff is so much more powerful than the Playboy and Penthouses that I got started with because it totally, that video stuff is so immersive. Yeah. And of course, and then we've got we've got virtual reality coming, which is like crack. Well, it's free. It's free. It's yeah. not you don't go buy the magazine or rent the video. This is all free. It's just out there. It's all free, and it it bypasses the the frontal the the prefrontal cortex, and really it stimulates the same pleasure centers in the brain that cocaine does, mm. and uh, it, it just overwhelms that part of the brain where we make critical decisions and moral judgments. Um. Yeah. And over time, it actually changes the brain in the same way that cocaine does. We can see it on brain scans. And that's why, you know, recovery is a healing process. And uh, we have to give our brains a chance to heal. We've got to start doing some stuff that makes it easier for the brain to heal. Uh, You know, it isn't, we can't really just think our way out of this. Yeah, for I, sure. I I went into recovery thinking that I'd found finally the guys who had the secret information. But it turns out it really isn't secret information. Mm-hmm. It's honest relationship. That's what it is. And it's healing. Well, and you you uh, in your book when you launched the Samson Society in Franklin, 
you you brought a lot of your history with AA into it. I laughed at you know when you said, "Hey, we have to say your name first. So, hey, hi, I'm Nate. You know, everybody says, yeah, "Hi, yeah, Nate. Yeah. Hi, Nate." And so, of yeah. course, everybody who watches TV, we know that's an AA thing. But let's talk about the Samson Society because we have found that that uh, pornography, compulsive disorders, that it's huge in this day and age with believers. I mean, when whenever I speak to men or whenever I uh, am in a group, I just assume that 99% of them are struggling with some level of pornography and the other 1% is a liar. And so yeah, I right, just kind yeah. of operate under that. Can you can you tell us what happens at a Samson Society meeting? How does this work? And, and, I, and maybe start with the seven principles listed on page 116 of your book. I can read those if you don't have them memorized. I'm sure they're part of your DNA, but I don't want to call you out yeah, here. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do have memories. Yeah, yeah. Every all of the all of the essentials of the Samson Society are listed on a single page. We call the charter, uh-huh. and that charter has three columns. The columns are the fact, the path, and the pact. The fact is a statement of faith. It's the gospel in seven statements. Mm-hmm. The path is kind of what we do together uh, in seven statements, and then the pact is the rules under which we do it. So uh, yeah, which one did you want to read? Well, I'm thinking it was the it was the, it was seven things, and I called them your distinctives. It starts yeah, with yeah. God exists. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's our statement of faith. The fact. Yeah. Okay. So God. Yeah. Uh, so then, and then beyond that, you go from fact, which are your Christian distinctives, to uh, what I called your seven stages, but you call this the path. Right. So right. Okay, the path. Now this the to me is. Yeah, and this to me is is where you veer you veer and you you make yourself distinct from AA and some of these other groups. Can you walk through yeah. these seven uh, stages that these men go through in the Samson Society? Yeah. So so the first stage is uh, believing the fact I surrender to God in simple faith, making no promises but merely asking for His aid. Hmm. And that really, that's, that's the tough one to get over. It's this surrender thing. It's saying, all right, I'm going to stop making promises because I'm finally accepting the fact I can't keep them. I don't have it in it. Mm-hmm. I'm too deeply wounded to heal myself. I'm going to need, I'm going to need God to do something miraculous here. Mm. Um, and so we stop this, uh, our habit of promising to try harder and do better. And now we're going to do something entirely different. We're going to surrender. And this surrender is going to come in practical steps that we haven't taken before. So, and then, so second stage is I, I start attending meetings of the society and from its members, I select what we call a Silas, a trustworthy traveling companion for this stretch of the road. So in AA or SA, any of the 12 step groups, you'll get a sponsor. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't have sponsors. We we call, but we say you need at least one Silas. So a Silas is a guy who you're going to form your first close friendship with. So you're going to, you're going to tell your story to him. He's not uh, an authority in your life, although you'll you'll learn to trust him. He's he's certainly not perfect. He's not a Yoda. He doesn't have all the answers. He's another idiot like you. Yeah. Because we're trusting Jesus here. But here's his great advantage. He's not you. You know, even at my craziest, but during my acting out, people came to me for advice. I gave good counsel, which led me to the wrong conclusion that I could be my own counselor. Mm-hmm. The, the truth is there's whole parts of my life that I can't see because I'm inside it. So I need somebody outside my life who I will. So talking about accountability, we talk about accessibility. I'm going to give another guy real time access to my life. I'm going to tell him my story. 
I'm going to talk to him every day. I'm going to tell him what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and what I'm thinking of doing. This guy is going to remember the things I tend to forget. He's going to ask the questions I tend to avoid. And he's going to remind me of who I really am. And he's going to love me. He isn't going to try to shame me out of my behavior. He's going to remind me of the gospel. And he's going to be helping himself while doing it. Here's what I know from being a silent. I get more help than I give when I walk with another guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for so, sure. So, uh, so it's crucially important we, we tell guys, look, the meetings are great. Uh, uh, the meetings are, uh, you know, they're an hour long, whether it's a local meeting or a virtual meeting. And uh, they'll change your life. You know, they're, they're powerful. I had a question yeah. about Nate. It, basically, yeah. I par- paraphrase it here. To honestly describe the course of your consequences, I thought that was a real interesting phrase. Can you describe what stage three looks like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Course, yeah. Actually, it's course and consequences of yes. my attempts to live apart from God. So I'm going to tell this guy my whole story, and then we're going to sit down and and look at He's going to help me go through and identify the consequences of my choices. Mm. What were the critical turning points? What choices did I made, make? And then what are those consequences? And what are those consequences? Not just for me. One of the great uh, illusions that I operated under for so many years when I lived by denial, it's the only way I could continue to function, was with massive denial. That's what keeps addiction alive. Mm-hmm. One of my uh, stories that I told myself was that because this behavior of mine was secret and I'd never been caught, that I wasn't affecting anybody else. Hmm. The consequences for my family were enormous. My emotional absence or something just as practical as the time and the money that was required for me. I mean, when I added it up later, I was stunned to find out uh, that I'd probably spent $300,000 on pornography and prostitutes. Yeah, for somewhere I thought you said five hundred thousand. I could not remember where I read it though. But three hundred thousand, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 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 that's not the worst thing. The worst thing is is I spent my children's childhood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And twenty years of my wife's life and twenty years of mine. Um, and there were other consequences. There were now. Fortunately, I did not catch a, a sexually transmitted disease. Fortunately, I was not arrested. Fortunately. Uh, but, but I've got plenty of brothers, man, who have, you know, it endured terrible consequences. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's stage three. Let's go back and let's do a full assessment of the course and consequences of my attempts to solve this on my own and live apart from God. It, I want to solve it on my own so that I can make myself acceptable to God. That's what us Christian guys tend to do. A mm-hmm. lot of us, mm-hmm. if we don't accept the gospel. I want to be my own savior, right? So then stage four, moving into daily disciplines? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so I developed the daily disciplines of prayer and study and self-examination. And I got some real good direction early on uh, during my time in SA, uh, you know, from my sponsor. It gave me very practical coaching on how to, uh, you know, schedule out a life that would remove a lot of decisions, pre-make a lot of decisions for myself. Mm-hmm. We tend, by the way, to get decision fatigue as a day goes on so that uh, we make poorer decisions toward the end of the day if we've had to make a whole lot of decisions throughout the day. During my years of active addiction, 
uh, I was devoted to always keeping my options open in everything. I didn't commit to any, right? You were the phantom, they called you. Oh, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have learned that that boring is good, yeah. that predictability is actually my friend, and to so to develop good, healthy practices and habits of self-care, spiritual self-care, prayer study, and self-examination. And it turns out, I mean, there is some effort and some time involved, but it actually took a lot more effort and a lot more time to do what I was doing before. Yeah. Yeah. Covering all the secrets. Yeah. Yeah. And this gives energy rather than sucking it all away. Yeah, for sure. So then number five was curious to me. I, 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 you know, a lot of woundedness here, I'm sure. Trusting the body of Christ. Yeah. I choose to trust the body of Christ, weighing the wisdom of my friends when facing decisions and seeking their strength when confronted by temptation. I, use the language, the body of Christ, but I didn't believe really in the body of Christ. Mm. Uh, I thought that was a metaphor. I did not believe before recovery that Jesus is physically present on this planet in the lives of broken people. Mm. But I believe it today. And today, the greatest act of surrender that I make to Christ is to tell the truth to another member of the body of Christ. Uh, and that's where Jesus shows up. Yeah. So learning to trust the body of Christ means le- I'm learning to trust that that uh, when, when I go to a trusted body, which is not just anybody, I'm not going to be an idiot. There are some people that I, you know, in the visible institutional church who I'd be crazy to talk to, to be. <laughs> well, I actually at this point, I've kind of burned all those bridges. Uh, but. <laughs> But but I do, you know, I counsel some guys, especially guys who are in full-time Christian ministry or guys in yeah. highly vulnerable social situations, to be careful about who they disclose to. You don't cast your pearls before swine. You don't need to, to throw your family on the altar. You don't need to climb up on the cross and commit suicide here. But you don't have to tell everything to everybody, but you better be telling everything to somebody. Wow, that's powerful right there. Yeah. Uh, but then, but, but what I've found is as I begin to trust other people, Jesus shows up. It's amazing to me. I'll call, I'll dial the number of a guy who I know is as messed up as I am. And Jesus answers the phone. Oh, wow. That's cool. That, that is a powerful stuff, man. So now I thought your number six was interesting especially in the context of an AA program, but you, you don't say to make amends. You say to make amends if you're not going to hurt yeah. that other person. So can you walk us through yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, there are going to, yeah. When I can do so without injuring anyone, I yeah. make amends for damage I have caused. Uh, sometimes guys, you know, I believe, by the way, I believe in healthy disclosure in a marriage. I believe in full disclosure as a, as a goal. Uh, but reckless disclosure early on can cause far more damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I got counsel early on in my recovery experience, you know, when I did my first, first step, uh, my first feeble attempts to, to kind of disclose my sexual history to another person. I got done and the guy I'd read it to, first of all, I'll tell you this, when I got started, I'd written it all on pages. You know, we sat down we met at a park, sat down on the bench and he said, Hey, before you start, What's the what's the one thing you didn't write down? Oh, <laughs> yeah. What's the withholding? You know? Yeah, yeah. I said, I said, what do you mean? Wait, he goes, no, there's always. So I told him the thing I hadn't written down, and 
And then he had me read the rest. I got done. He said, how do you feel? I said, man, I feel a hundred pounds, you know, a ton lighter. So many, he goes, man, I bet you want to go right home and tell your wife everything, don't you? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I do. He said, please don't. Yeah, yeah. If she doesn't suspect, and if she's not ready, for you, it wouldn't be fair for you to unburden your conscience at the expense of hers, just to broadside her. Mm. And I have seen guys blow up marriages they didn't need to blow up, just hammer a wife in order to feel better. And, and, and then... <laughs> The, the greatest day of his life becomes the worst day of hers. Yeah. Wow. So disclosure needs to be done carefully. It needs to be done in the context of healing and recovery. It actually should be done with somebody who's an experienced guide and facilitator. Mm. Um, yeah. That's not something to be rushed un- unless uh, it's something that the wife is prepared for and is asking for. Yeah. Well, and you shared in your book that at one point Allie came in after a, a period of silence and processing, yeah. and she began the interrogation process because yeah, she wanted yeah. the questions answered that she had. Yeah. And so you were able to do that when she was ready instead of burdening her with all of it. That would yeah, have she, yeah. that would have killed her. So I appreciate that yeah, wisdom. The, the deal that uh, I was advised to make with my wife was that I would not lie to her anymore and that I would always give her an honest answer to a direct question. And what my sponsor says is, she will ask you the question when she's ready for the answer. Oh yeah, that's good. And then I, I think stage seven comes full circle. It seems like, and you want to explain stage seven? Yeah. I offer myself as a stylist to others. Each day I ask God for the grace to seek his kingdom rather than my own, uh, to serve those he places in my path rather than serving myself. And this really is, uh, this is what takes uh, recovery to the next level when we turn from obsessive self-concern, yeah, you know, we have to do a lot of internal work and personal work and recovery, but recovery in the end isn't all, this healing isn't about me. And when I now can begin to, to show concern for other people, help other people, I, I get so much help by helping other people. As long as I'm willing to remain in a relationship where I'm also asking for help, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I uh, see. I have made the mistake. I've gotten a bad case of Silasitis. There was at one point where I was Silas to sixteen guys. Oh wow! I, you know, four more than Jesus. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and it was not good. It was not good for my ego, and I didn't do a good job. So I restrict myself now. I'm Silas to five guys. That's pretty. That's I've decided. That's pretty much my max. Um, I can, cause I can spend, I can take daily messages from those guys and I can give each guy a, a, an hour of my time. I, I go walking with my guys once a week, uh, one at a time. Hmm. So I got a Monday guy, a Tuesday guy, a Wednesday guy, a Thursday guy, a Friday guy, which helps them. But I do it selfishly really, because it helps me. It's absolutely key to my continued healing and sanity. I really appreciate that uh, daily deal. That's really cool. Well, hey, so we're running out of time here, Nate, but before we go, can you just take about five minutes and share what happens in an hour of a Samson Society meeting? Yeah, I sure can. And the reason, by the way, the reason we use that cheesy AA protocol is that it eliminates the need to have a facilitator or a moderator. 
Yeah. We want, we want, if possible, to keep everybody on the same level. We don't want a clerical class. Um, I love, so it runs, uh, I learned this in 12-step meetings. It runs kind of on a script that's almost liturgical in a little bit of a way. In, in other words, we read the fact at every meeting. We open every meeting with uh, a reading of the 23rd Psalm and with prayer. Uh, then whoever is facilitating that leading, hosting the meeting that day. And I love, by the way, to toss the meeting book to somebody who's there for the second time. Oh, yes. Say, hey, it's your meeting, dude. If you can read, you can lead, right? Yeah. And he will distribute the other readings to other guys in the room. So one guy will read the fact, another guy will read the path, another guy at the end of the meeting will read the pact. Um, the, the, we'll do introductions. And this is helpful because at every meeting, when it's my turn, I say, hi, I'm Nate. And everybody says, hi, Nate. I get to hear my name. And I can give a brief statement of what brought me to the meeting. And so uh, this helps me. It's becoming more and more important as I get older. I get reminded of everybody's name every week. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, we, pick, uh, we pick a topic. Usually it's a one word or single phrase topic. There's 150 suggested topics, but you don't, you, you don't, you can go off list if you want. And here's what I have found. It's the strangest thing in 20 years of countless meetings, even though nobody, even though the topic wasn't announced in advance, even though nobody prepared a lesson, even though there wasn't a sermon, even though there wasn't anybody, you know, intentionally tying it all together. As long as we brought our real selves and said the real truth and we spoke out of our own lives around that topic, I, by the time the meeting was over, everything that's supposed to happen when we get together somehow happened. I got encouraged. I got instructed. I may have gotten reproved. I, I got what I came for. I never left the Samson. And it's, all we're doing is just sharing honestly out of our own lives around a topic. I might be talking this week about fear. I might be talking about loneliness. I might be talking about joy. I might be talking about, I don't know, taxes. <laughs> uh, if somebody wants to pick a weird topic. Now, if it's a larger group, we will count off to get into groups that are small enough. We, ideally, you want maybe five, six, at most seven guys in a sharing group. Because we're trying to run a tight one-hour meeting, and we want it to give everybody a chance to speak. Mm -hmm. And the rules are that in a Samson meeting, you get the floor by saying your name. So I go... I'm Nate. Everybody goes, hi, Nate. Now I have the floor. And I'm allowed to speak now. And nobody's allowed to interrupt me, question me, and uh, correct me. They're only allowed to do what Christians are not generally known for, which is listen to me. And when I'm done, I say thanks, and they say thanks, Nate. So that's how sharing runs. And uh, often, if there's enough time, after everybody shares, a couple of guys will double dip because something that somebody said opened a door I hadn't seen before, right? So we do sharing up until about five minutes before the end of the meeting, then we come back together and uh, we, read, we read the pact together and we stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. And then we have a meeting after the meeting. And this is crucially important. I have found that uh, for, for groups, local groups that have started, the groups that have struggled either uh, didn't follow the script and, and, and kind of turned it into something. It's turned it into a discussion or a Bible study. They got all theoretical and not personal and just fell into old habits. 
or they didn't have a meeting after the meeting. So we go to we go to an Irish pub after our meeting. And that's where we have a, another hour or so of informal fellowship. Hmm. And that's where a guy can follow up with a question. That's where you can ask a guy to be your Silas. Um, and that's where we laugh and joke and, you know. So anyway, that's that's Samson night, Monday night here in Franklin, Tennessee. Meeting starts at 7, ends at 8, and then we go to the pub for the meeting after the meeting. But really, Samson lives between the meetings yes. in the daily phone calls. I appreciate yeah. that, man. That is so good. Nate, man, we are like over time and out of time. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your heart and sharing your story. It's inspiring. And guys listening today, what's next for you? What are some things you can do to get, you know, to follow up on this uh, podcast? And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go check out the Samson Society website, samsonsociety.com. And if you're a guy struggling with some kind of compulsive behavior that you want to uh, get some encouragement, man, check out their groups. They got local groups that are real time. And then they have, what'd you say, 30 virtual uh, groups, Nate? Yeah, yeah, I've got 30 virtual meetings. Our goal is to have a meeting every hour of every day. That's where we're headed. Man, that's so but cool. So now guys, there's 30. Well, that's yeah. guys, there's no excuse. Go on the website. If you're a guy, I mean, go do that. You're going to you'll be you'll be blessed. And guys, we'll also post the boots on the ground action item in our weekly equipping blast for men that you can get to by subscribing at meninarena.org and we'll also shoot you a free copy of my bathroom book for men. And so, guys, also make sure you head on over to our Facebook forum on Facebook, and we have a new one on our website. Guys, did you know that we are a nonprofit, crowdfunded organization, and we exist because of the generous donations from people like you, and we're able to freely offer our podcast, our resources, and all of our curriculum to uh, men uh, and missionaries in underdeveloped countries. So if you have more, um, you want to know about it, you can check it out at meninarena.org. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Check out Samson Society. Grind it out and be a man. Men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our Men in the Arena forums. You can join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's bathroom book for men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.